the Beer EDU Podcast, Episode 96, Breaking Code with Daphne McMenemy. Welcome to the Beer EDU Podcast, the podcast for educators that love to learn and share ideas with fellow educators over beers, with your hosts, Kyle Anderson and Ben Dixon. Hey, Kyle, how are you doing, my friend? Doing well. It is um, an early morning recording this time around. We don't do these that often. No, that, that is true. It is a Saturday morning. This is episode 096 of the Beer ED podcast. And if it's the Beer ED podcast, I must be Ben Dixon, the guy you can find on Twitter and Instagram at BDixonNV and you. Um, I must be Kyle Anderson, the guy you, you can find on Twitter at AndersonEdTech. Same with the Instagram and my blog, AndersonEdTech.net. And then you can also find that book that I wrote, To the Edge, Successes and Failures Through Risk-Taking on Amazon, on Barnes & Noble, my publisher, EduMatch Publishing. So different ways yes. you can connect with both of us. Um, and because this is the Beer EDU podcast, we yes. do drink beer, but because it's an early Saturday morning, let's talk about the beers we had last night with dinner instead. There ben. we go. Yeah. Well, let's share yours because I, I I like You have a good one. Yeah. And um you know, going with our topic later on, this was actually a really good one with our topic. So I'm not going to tease it too hard uh, right now, but um, my wife went to Trader Joe's and found all sorts of fun beers. And uh, one she found was Deschutes Brewing, a great brewery out of Oregon yep. that we have talked about before. The Red Chair NWPA, Northwest Pale mm-hmm. Ales, what that stands for. So 6.2% ABV, 60 IBU. So a little bit higher for a pale yeah. ale. You know, those typically range like around 30 to 40. Right. Um, it was a little sweet. It's a little piney. Um, and this is from the words of the person at Trader Joe's that helped my wife find this beer. He described it as a pale ale and an IPA if they had a baby. And that's actually really good because it's not, it's it's hoppy like an IPA, but then like the maltiness is kicked down like a pale ale. Yeah, so it, it it was a really nice combination of just that little bit of sweet and a pine, like I said, but not overpowering like sometimes an IPA can get. So no, just a really good one. Yeah, I, and I love that one. That I have had that one. Um, I I would say that is a great way to describe it. It is it is kind of a mix between the two. Yeah, and uh, no, like I said, just a a really good one. I think I need to go find like maybe a sixer of it because I liked it yeah. enough to have that, but you, my friend have something that is a, <laughs> something I really like and B not I, a pale no, ale at all. So I went the opposite way. So last night for my, my dessert beer, I had a new Holland brewing dragon's milk. So stout and it's an, it's termed an Imperial double, um, 11% ABV. So It'll double, almost double yours, and uh, 30 IBUs, so down low on the IBUs, but um, bourbon barrel aged um, from a brewery. New Holland is out of Michigan. I'm sure you know it, um, and uh, just, it's a it's a strong, solid stout, you know, that's got that great chocolate and that coffee in it, and um, yeah, that was my, uh, that was my dessert last night. Yeah, uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan is uh, unofficially or maybe officially dubbed Beer City, USA. And okay. New Holland is just outside of Grand Rapids. But 
I forget the exact number that in the Grand Rapids metropolitan area, how many dozens of breweries there are and New Holland is okay. one of them. And yeah, I've had this dragon's milk a handful of times and it is just, oh, it's boozy. It's heavy. It, but oh, yeah. It is oh, yeah. Glorious. That is a great, great beer right yeah, there. Good. So I have not had one of those in a while. So I might be making a trip to the store today. See if I can find one. Yeah, because, it's a good yeah, one. That's a real well, Hey, and so as we always do on the show, we always have a guest. So um, welcome Daphne McEnemy for joining us. And now we talked before the show, you don't, you don't have a drink, um, but you do enjoy something. So share with us what that is. So I am a coffee drinker, really. There we go. Yeah. And go. Um, I got to be honest, I don't have a lot of standards for my coffee <laughs> drinking. It just needs to have caffeine in it and it needs to be hot. I would agree. I think coffee falls, and we've talked about this, no bad beer, no bad pizza, no bad coffee. Uh, pretty much. There we go. Yeah, I'm good with that. Yeah, I think about the only coffee I'm not a fan of is sometimes just for convenience, I'll buy instant coffee for when I'm camping. Yeah. And some of those can get really bad. The, mm -hmm. Some of those are terrible. Um, I found that, I, I can't remember the name of it one time, but this stuff in a jar that I found that I took a sip of it and poured it out. Uh, that's how bad it was. Uh, but I found like some of those instant ones, they come in like the little singles pack where like yeah. you kind of dump it in, mix it up. I mean, it's yeah. not great, but it'll do. It'll do. Uh, so yeah, yeah I, I'm not a, I, I don't discriminate coffee either. Yeah, just no. hot and caffeinated. I'm good too. So, so, so now the question is, how do you take your coffee? Like, I take my coffee with a little bit of milk and a little okay. bit of sugar. Okay. There we go. Yeah, I, I just drink. Yeah, I drink mine straight black. So I'm always curious what other people do. Yeah, I'm the same way. I'm one of those that whenever I go through, say, Starbucks or Dunkin yeah. or whatever, they always ask, do you want room for cream? I'm like, please don't ruin my coffee by adding <laughs> stuff to it. I just want black coffee. But thank you. So yeah, I, have, I have no taste buds. So I pretty much have determined that's pretty much what I'm going to drink. Yeah. So, so well, Daphne, yeah, tell us. You, you like coffee, so tell us a little bit more about yourself. Like, what's your thing? What are you passionate about? Well, um, I'm an educator. Um, I'm an author. And uh, I am, I'm passionate about those two things. I, um, I am a big, big, big believer of the integration of all things technology in education. So um, I would say that is my biggest passion, is the... Um, the integration of technology into um, education for all kids as young as kindergarten, which is um, one of my favorite places to be. So I've been teaching for 15 years and I've spent most of my career in the K to three space. Um, I started in three and slowly moved my way down as uh, the years went on. And the last few years I've spent in kindergarten and it has been um, probably my favorite place to be. This year I was moved up into grade one simply because our, our numbers with COVID and remote learning and all that stuff um, didn't really allow for, for me to stay in K, but um, there's something very, well, there's something very different about kindergarten for, for I mean, I think, I think that's an obvious thing to, to know, um, but there's something very special about being in kindergarten and it takes a certain kind of educator to love being in kindergarten. There are a lot of challenges with being in a space with 30 kids. Our kindergarten numbers are quite high and our kindergarten program um, is a two-year program that starts 
in um, what we call junior kindergarten. And so for those kids coming in, they can be as young as three. As long as they turn four by the end of that calendar year, they are welcome into kindergarten and they're there for two years. So some of our kids start at three. Some of our kids that we're meeting for the first time can be um, close to six. So that, that range in abilities and understanding and just life um, on earth <laughs> for some of our kids is so huge that um, it takes a lot of learning to, to understand how to approach these kids, especially at the very beginning of their, of their education. Um, but what I love about it is being able to be with them for two years and the growth that you get to see, not only academic, but social um, and just everything about who they are when you first meet them on that first day to when they leave you two years later, moving into uh, first grade. So this year I'm in uh, grade one and two, we have um, a split system here. And what I love about that is the fact that I've taught many of these kids in their kindergarten years. So I love that I get to continue with them on their, their journey and, and see where, they, where they're gonna continue to go. So yeah, that's sort of me. Now you mentioned uh, that you you were teaching kindergarten, but you get moved up to grade one based on COVID numbers. So we were talking a little bit before we hit the record button that uh, you're outside of Toronto, and I've talked to a handful of educators from Canada, uh, namely Ontario. And it sounds like to kind of um, mitigate the numbers a little bit, a lot of classrooms are actually going split right now. Was that the case with you, or are you teaching just straight first grade right now? So I'm teaching split one and two, and that's not a COVID thing. That's an Ontario thing. So um, it's, it's just a numbers thing. So our in our province from uh, grade one to three, we have provincial caps. So you can't have more than 20 students in that class. So if there's only 15 first graders in your school, they're going to give you five more grade twos to top up your numbers. So that's um, those split classes happen based solely on, on math, to be honest. Um, and the reason I moved up is because a lot of our students at the school that I'm at this year have chosen uh, remote learning. So they're home. So um, not having the need for, for teachers in the classroom, um, which is why I moved up into first grade. So this year I have 20 students, five of which are, um, so we were teaching this year in a hybrid model. So I have 15 in-class students and five online um, in two different grades. So it is, it is quite a challenge. Right now we are, we are home. Um, we are all fully remote until uh, February for now for uh, safety and health and all of those things. Um, but I've been, I've taught split grades forever. It's just, it's the nature of the beast in Ontario with our numbers being so great, um, with our, rather with, with those caps. So it's great to only have 20 students, but then the other side of that is you're teaching two grades, double the curriculum. So there's, um, there's that sort of give and take there. So do you get a lot of students that you had the previous year that you get to work with for two years in a row then as a result? This year? Yes. Yeah, I do. Which I love. I love that I, that I get to. I had them in, in for two years in kindergarten, some of them for just one year, and then to, to see them again. It's really, I mean, I understand the, the, the need for students having different teachers. I, I totally you know, see the benefits of, of them having a different educator as they go through. But on a completely selfish note, I now only know, I already know now where they are. Um, I know what makes them tick um, for the good and the bad. I know um, all about their, their social abilities and, and you know, what, who to sit them beside, who not to sit them beside. I've built a relationship with their families, um, their siblings. So 
there's so many benefits from the teacher side to be able to have the same students. And I get to pick up where I left off, uh, which I love. I love that part the most. Um, you know, I know their learning styles, so I can meet them and I can meet those needs, especially for our kids, maybe on the lower academic side. Um, I can continue with the same strategies and I already have learned what works and more importantly, what doesn't work. So for those kids, the benefit is they're not meeting a brand new person who needs to sort of start over and, and learn about them all over again. So I love being able to teach the same kids over and over. And that's also one of the benefits of teaching the split grade. If I'm teaching, you know, one, two this year and one, two again next year, there's, a, you know, the opportunity for my twos next year to have been my ones this year. So I do, um, I've always loved that, that part of, of the split grade. And having taught the split grade K-1, or not the split, but roll, we, we call it rolling with your kids. I took my kinders to first, most of them, and then I've done it with four or five, I've done it with five, six. I agree with you. I think you hit the ground running with those kids, like mm -hmm. they already know everything. And I would imagine that this year, of all years, this is extra beneficial. There's no, yeah, you just, yeah. you don't have to worry about building a relationship virtually with kids. Mm -hmm. You know, that was my biggest fear. So when we, um, like yourselves, we um, basically shut the doors of our schools March 13th and we never went back. And for us, we didn't know that. We were getting sort of that notification every couple of weeks. So we, mm -hmm. we sat hoping that we would be able to go back. And then eventually it was, you know, we're, we'll, we'll cross this bridge again come September. Right. So then in August, we still didn't know if we were going to be going back. Um and eventually it was, okay, you're going back. And for me, the whole summer was this for fear of, I don't know how to build these relationships with kids on a screen. Um, mm -hmm. That is going to be a very difficult thing. And um, thankfully for me, I didn't have to do that. When we started in September, we didn't have the hybrid model. We had a remote model so or face-to-face. -face. So I was in the classroom with all of my kids. We had changed that um, halfway through that, our first uh, term. But when I had, when I, we did move into the hybrid model, I met five brand new students that I'd never met before. And I met them on a computer and I feel like I was able to, to build that relationship with them. So, you know, I was sort of afraid all of this time. And I mean, in the end, and isn't that sort of how life goes, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. But the thing that I've heard from parents is um, on having me as, as a teacher again, is that their biggest, um, and maybe not fear, but concern or hope this year was just that their kid was going to be happy. Um, you know, academics this year have and is not at on the priority level of of all educators as it should be. You know, our students and their well being should be first, especially this year. So for those parents, what I've heard is we're just grateful it's you. We know so and so is safe and happy. And hey, if they learn a little bit this year, fantastic. But it's given them one more thing to not have to worry about because like I said, we've established this, this relationship already. Yeah, I think back to when I was in high school, I had the same teacher for geometry and then pre-calculus. There was a year in between them, but when I got that teacher again for pre-calc, I already knew what that teacher expected. Mm -hmm. So you, you made a lot of great points about how as a teacher, already knowing your kids in that relationship, whatever, is very important, but it's very important for the student as well. And I mean, totally different situation. And that was over 20 years ago, but just the ease of moving into that pre-calculus class after already having that teacher just made it that much better for me because I already knew what to expect. So I, I just, I've never been able to teach really having those same kids outside of a handful because 
I would teach U.S. history to high school juniors one year, and then maybe I'd get a handful of them the following year when I taught government. But I never had like almost a, an entire cohort of students uh, per se in that situation. So, and Ben, like you said, for this year, I mean, just the importance of that is is even more um, just the, the, the strength behind that for this year in this whole situation, especially now, Daphne, that you've gone into a full remote model again after having them face to face again, right. that mm-hmm. like you've known some of these kids now for three years. So that transition was probably a lot easier then. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, what I've noticed um, in our last few weeks being completely remote for us. So when we went remote in the spring, um, there was very different expectations for educators than there is now. So in the spring when we went remote, it was, you know, get online, do what you can. This, this technology was so foreign to so many of us. You know, we'd used the, uh, you know, we'd use Google Classroom and we used, you know, we were introduced to Zoom and we had that, but we've never, we never had to teach online before. So we were given sort of our mandate, you know, you have to provide this much work, this many hours a week, depending on, you know, your age, whereas this going remote, um, now it's, you know, you need to be online all day and right. this, and you're expected basically to do exactly what you were doing, but just in front of a screen. So there's a huge learning curve. Um, and two things that I learned was as an educator, just because you may be what is my least favorite term techie <laughs> and mm-hmm. know how to use a computer. It does not mean that, you know, how to teach online. And I am that person. Um, I, I can code robots and I can, you know, build websites and I can do all of that. But my first week completely remote was a complete train wreck. And it was just, it just got worse as the week went on until I was finally able to sort of sit back. You have all of these expectations of things that you should be able to know how to do. And somehow I couldn't do any of those things. So, you know, that learning curve was big, but for the kids, it was the same thing. So not only do I need to teach the content to my first and second graders, but I need to teach them how to use, I need to be their tech support. So, you know, I'm trying to teach them how to create a growing pattern at the same time as teaching them how to move and drag things in a Google slide while they're sobbing on the screen because they're completely frustrated. And there's 15 plus kids all just shouting your name. And then there's five kids jumping on their bed and doing whatever it is that they want to do in that moment, because this is not the learning style that they need. So it's, 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 you know, it's my circus and they're my monkeys and I love them. And the fact that I've been with some of them for three years, I can, I've learned how to talk them off a ledge right. through a screen, you know, and, and wipe those tears as best I can. I, I just laugh because I've literally <laughs> had the same conversation yesterday <laughs> with one of my teachers who is, so we have kids face to face in my building K5, but we also have distance learning. So I have four teachers who have kids doing remote. And one of my <laughs> teachers is like, overwhelmed she feels because she's a a master teacher and she's like I don't feel like I'm doing enough and we were discussing you can't do what you would normally do face to face in a screen it's just and I I wonder yours what I hear from you is it's the same kind of thing and do you feel like this is a question I had for her and I'm just curious about what you think do you think that the curriculum or what we're asked to teach in a face-to-face setting it doesn't, to me, it doesn't work in an online format, whether whatever textbooks you're using, whatever mm-hmm. you're using. I mean, are you facing the it's, same thing? Oh, hundred percent. How do you teach phys ed through a screen? How do you teach drama? How do you teach, mm-hmm. you know, even something as simple for us with visual arts. Well, if I can give you the list of materials that you're going to need, but if you don't have them, what are you going to do? And there's only so much you can accommodate certain activities. 
So then you, that equity piece always sticks in the back of your head. So it's not fair to so-and-so who doesn't have these materials at home for whatever reason. And so then do I just not do the activity? Well, well then what about all the kids who do have those materials? And so it's a very, very fine line of complete and utter guilt that you're not doing enough. Um, the, the, the weight of you know, wanting to make sure that you're, you're doing everything you can, realizing you're doing everything you can, and at the same time realizing it's just never gonna be enough. Um, and that is very, very difficult. And you know, we have kids whose parents are working from home as well. So, I mean, I'm working from home and my daughter's upstairs doing her thing, so I can't help her. Um, and I understand that. So if she needs something, she's you know, gonna hope that the teacher's gonna be able to provide that. Um, but if the teacher can't for whatever reasons, um, she just sort of has to sit back and wait till after school when I can help her. But then she's missed all of this, you know, great learning or she sat in tears out of frustration. So we can't meet, I cannot, I just can't, we cannot meet the needs of all of our learners behind the screen. Um, and, you know, we have very, very, very well-meaning and well-intentioned parents who are helping their kids do the work, but what that, that can sometimes turn into is doing the work for them and therefore removing all of that learning. And as a parent who is not an educator, you don't necessarily know that, right? And, you know, you can't, can't be upset with those parents. They're, they're literally, like I can see shoulders and I can see parents next to their child and that's what you want. But for our learners who need the opportunity to, 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 you know, take on those challenges by themselves and figure out the strategies and use those strategies that we were talking about from September till December, you know, that parent who, like I said, is well-meaning is removing all of that opportunity for learning without even really realizing. So there's so many um, barriers that we face today as educators or today, like literally <laughs> right now as educators that um, it is impossible to feel like you are doing a good job. And, you know, and not, and I don't say this for pity by any means. I don't say this for pity. It's just the nature of, of what we're facing right now. I think that's an unintended outcome of this. I think mm -hmm. you described uh, teachers are, they want to do the best for kids they want to do. And I think, and I, I don't know if you feel this way. I know I, I think a lot of teachers I've talked to and educators, Kyle and I've talked about this. Everybody feels like it's their first year now. Yeah. Like I have, I have people who have been doing this for 20 years and they're like, I have no idea None. what I'm doing <laughs> today. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to acknowledge that. I think you're exactly yeah. right. I call myself a, a veteran first-year teacher. Um, I have no idea what I'm doing. You know, I I actually called one of my colleagues um, earlier this week, and I, <laughs> I said, "So please don't judge me for for asking you what I'm about to ask you." But you know, and he teaches in um, he teaches in the intermediate, so he teaches grade seven and eight. I'm teaching grade one and two, and I called him and I said, "So how do you know what math to teach right now?" Because I'm just googling stuff and making stuff up because I don't know how to do on a screen what I would be doing in the classroom and I felt before I called him that I should know and I don't know why I don't so I'm going to call the safest person I know <laughs> to admit that I have no idea what I'm doing and he is somebody that I look up to in like incredibly and he literally said oh yeah I have no idea I'm just googling the same thing and then I remember I called one of my girlfriends and she said the same thing. She said, I'm spending hours Googling how to do this. And the amount of money teachers are spending right now to purchase, you know, 
um, Google slide resources that have already been created so that they're not spending hours in their evening creating an activity that literally takes five minutes to do in your six hour day is incredible to me. It's crazy, but it's what we have to do. And that's, I think where I was, and that's one of the things I wonder is that you're with, especially kinder first. So I'm thinking about, it's all hands-on. You talk about using manipulatives, especially with math. That's a perfect example. And I think, okay, that is a limitation of a, a, whatever textbook series that you've purchased for your district or whatever your standards Mm -hmm. are, that's a limitation because that was designed in a face-to-face situation. It was not designed for this. And I worry about exactly what you're talking about is like now teachers are like, well, I can't do that. Or how do I do that? And then I'm, yeah. And then I'm shelling out 500 bucks on whatever website to get resources. Well, I can be honest and say at the very beginning of, of, um, of for me for hybrid when I was meeting kids online um, and that's extended now being remote was I, I was of the mindset of, well, they don't, you know, I can't, I don't have these manipulatives for my kids at home. And, you know, yes, there's the, the virtual ones, but some kids are using different devices where it doesn't work. So I just, I just don't know what to do. So I'm just not going to do it um, because I just, I found it exponentially difficult Um now I'm, I'm, I'm have, I've realized that I need to take on a different mindset. So, okay, I can't do it that way, but how can I do it? And I was not there even just a few weeks ago. I was not at the, how can I do it phase? It was the, I can't, so I won't, I don't know. And because I, I was, I was tired. I was out of ideas. It's mentally draining. Um, and again, you just, you, you just have this constant, I'm not doing enough, but I don't know how to do any more. So it takes some, some self-reflection to sort of be okay with that and give yourself permission to, to be okay with that and to understand that this is not a reflection of you as a teacher. It's a reflection of the circumstances. Um, and then, you know, kind of dust yourself off and, and say, all right, you know, moving on now, what? Let's, let's make this happen. Let's figure this out. I'm going to stop complaining about it. And now I'm going to figure out how to do it. So that's where I'm at now. And I'm much happier. Well, and something that you brought up, that's really important for anybody listening that hasn't embraced it yet is you talked about talking to other people and communicating with other people, looking for answers. And I guarantee there's a lot of educators out there right now that are completely lost or frustrated to where they just don't think it can happen and they're not communicating with people. So communicating with people is, is key. And I mean, it's just yesterday. I, my special education facilitator who reviews all of our IEPs before we take them into a meeting, whatever she was asking me, well, Hey, have you, were you able to contact the parent at all to get some information from them and talk to the student all I said, and in this particular situation, the, the dad was able to fill out the Google form, so I got a little information ahead of time, but I never was able to make community, uh, contact with the student. And mm-hmm. right now, and there's so many factors that go into that. It, they don't check their email for the form that I send them, or uh, I could try to pop into a class and, and they're absent that day or something. Mm-hmm. It's not like when we're face to face where I can dip out of the class I'm co-teaching or on my prep hour, go track a kid down and sit down with them and have a 10 minute conversation for yeah. their transition piece of their IEP. Mm-hmm. And she and I were just really just commiserating about how frustrated we were and how we can't really do anything about it right now. But at the same time, we are trying to bounce ideas off each other about how can we connect with these kids and connect with parents. And Mm -hmm. I mean, again, a lot of them, their ideas that maybe we've tried them and they're just not working right now. So, but 
it's not stopping us from communicating. So mm-hmm. when you brought that up, I'm like, I, I definitely need to say something about right. that because it's yeah. so important that educators are trying to communicate during this time. Right. So mm-hmm. now not to shift away from, from a, a good piece right there, something else that you brought up was about some of these topics that are just so hard to teach remotely. Right. You're really into coding with your young students. Right. And mm-hmm. that's something too that I can imagine is really tough because you not every kid has access to a robot or something that right. you're doing coding with. So I would love to hear what you were doing in person and now how you have shifted teaching coding to students now that yeah. you're in this hybrid to distance model. So the, I can be honest and say the, <coughs> excuse me, the coding piece online is it's there, you know, there's, there's a ton of amazing websites that you can um, that you can access um, I can go on Scratch and I can I can code in Scratch and that's great. But that's uh, my kids are not there yet. Um, that type of learning for me, I need to be there with them. I need to be like almost literally sitting on top of them so that I can explain every move that they make. Um, so we're not there yet. But you know, there's like um, Bbot and and I'm not um, advertising or getting any money for anything. But Bbot has a Terrapin website where there's a Bbot emulator and you can go and you can click the arrows and Bbot moves. And there's, so there's a lot of websites like that. Those in my experience for my little people are only fun for so long. Like we get it, push the arrow, the bot on the screen moves the end. So my students, because I've had most of them for a couple of years, they already know what they're missing in the classroom. I have, I have, I have a, a robot issue where I just keep buying them. <laughs> so um, I have, I have many um, and they are set up in my classroom for kids to take at the appropriate time. Um, you know, we have really um, high standards in place for how to use the robot when the appropriate time is and to use the ones that they know how to use. So to go from that model where they can go to our little robot tower, grab the bot that they need, grab the technology that they need, grab the manipulatives that they need and just sit at their table and do their thing to all of a sudden not have that and be staring at a screen to press some arrows is um, not great. It's not great. So I can continue to use the um, online tools available and we can continue to play these games. But for my particular group of students, that's not enough for them anymore because We've already done that. They're beyond that. But it's this fine line where they're not far enough ahead where I can teach them to start to create things using Scratch. Um, I mean, they're six and seven years old. So for them, the, the hands-on robotic piece was such an important part of their day. Um, and that's something that they're really, really excited to uh, go back to school to use. And not all of them. I don't have um, you know a class full of kids that I brainwashed into loving robots like I do, (laughs) but I do have many. And that's, they're just, they, and they say that I'm excited to come back so I can play with, you know, such and such robot. And I'm excited to, to come back. And I mean, I think that that's the nature of of education. They're just excited to come back to touch things and do things with real things, um, whether it's a robot or otherwise. So moving my coding program completely virtual has been difficult. Um, because of where my kids are at. Um, I'm not going to stop. I'm going to, I'm going to keep going and I'm trying to figure out a way to move from, you know, arrows on a grid to, to actual code. The, the, the issue becomes when I'm staring at a screen of 20 kids, I know that 20 of them are not, um, are not going to be at this space yet. So 
in a classroom, I can pull aside my, you know, four or five kids and I can work with those kids um, while still being in the room in a virtual space, <clears throat> excuse me, that I can't, I can't do that. You know, I can move into a breakout room and, you know, we have all of those options, but then I have 15 kids sort of unsupervised in another breakout room. And I've tried that. It doesn't work. <laughs> so, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> yeah. That's a whole other podcast. So um, yeah, it's, it's, I admittedly, it, it has been difficult. And again, it's, I'm having that same conversation with some of my colleagues to, you know, what are you doing um, to make this engaging for your kids? And what I've learned is sometimes you just can't, you know, there's only so, so there's only so far an arrow on a grid can go um, without needing to teach them the next step, not through a screen. So, so you're also not only, you know, a, a veteran teacher doing all these things, doing all these great things with coding, you're a published author. So tell yes. us a little bit about, about, about that, about your book. So um, I released the, my third book actually this past wow. December. Um, and uh, the book is about a little girl named Gracie. So it's a series and Gracie is a little girl who is uh, sort of your disengaged learner to start. And then, you know, she goes through the motions of school and every day is the same and every day is sort of, you know, she, she likes school, but it's sort of just the same thing every day. And then her teacher introduces her to a robot and teaches her how to code and her world sort of opens up that way. And she discovers all of the learning that she can do um, given this, this new skill and, you know, her imagination comes to life. And Gracie started as just an idea. Um, Gracie is published through Codebreaker, which is um, a fantastic publishing company, if I may say. <laughs> and um, Gracie started over a DM. So uh, Brian Aspinall, who is the uh, founder CEO of uh, Codebreaker, sent me a DM through Twitter one day. He was in the process of exploring the publishing space with kids books and um, sent me a DM. And he just said, you know, hey, have you ever considered writing a children's book? Um, and I remember, you know, seeing this on my phone and I remember responding with, um, yeah, you know, I have, but I've never known where to start. And he responded with, you just start. And it was these sort of three incredibly powerful words that for me changed the course of where I was in education, changed the course of where I was in life. And I picked up a pen and I started writing. So that's, um, and I started writing Gracie with the intention of her being a series. So the first book is just called Gracie. The second book, uh, Brian and I actually wrote together and it is called What Happens When I Learn to Code. And What Happens When I Learn to Code is more of a sort of nonfiction, sorry, yeah, nonfiction piece where it's Gracie giving, um, you know, her explanation, her reasons of, of what happens when she learns to code and how she becomes a risk taker when she learns to code and what that now looks like in her real life and how she's become a problem solver and what that looks like. So that came out last summer. And then on December 9th of 2020, I released the third book, which is called Gracie the Maker. And um, there is coding and it's more making, obviously. <laughs> and Gracie meets a new classmate and together they work to create um, a Rube Goldberg type machine to uh, feed their class pet. And so that's, um, that's the Gracie series. That's, uh, I, I, I knew that you had published one book. I didn't realize there was three and I didn't realize how quickly they all came out in succession either. So, I mean, that, uh, I, you know, as a published author, just the whole process for the one book for me, I remember just being a lot of, uh, a lot of fun, but a lot of stress though, too. So, uh, what was that process like trying to write and publish three books in just such a short span of time? Well, and, and I want to know if there's more coming. 
Oh, there's definitely more coming. Okay. <laughs> there's definitely more coming. Um, so, you know what, when I first started, so when Brian first came to me with that, that, um, you know, question, I knew immediately what I wanted to write about. I knew it, I wanted to write about a little girl. I knew it needed to be about technology. Um, at the time I knew uh, a lot of books about coding, but I didn't know anything. Nothing stuck out to me about robotics. And that was what I was doing in my classroom so often. So I knew that that's what I wanted it to be about. Um, Gracie was born from four students that I taught. So she is sort of the combination of these four students that I taught that were incredibly inspiring to me as an educator. So that part was really easy. I knew what I wanted to write about. I knew how I wanted the book to end. Uh, it was the middle piece. It was the connection of, well, I know I want these events to happen. How do I connect that to the end? And I found that that, that part of the writing process was where I got stuck on. So I would just write, um, you know, I'd sort of put all my ideas out. I remember actually putting them on paper and sitting at my table and moving these papers all over the place to see how I could get these ideas to connect. And when I couldn't, I put it aside. Um, and then I remember Brian reaching out to me a few months later, just saying, you know, we want to put some order to, to the books that he was looking at putting out. Um, and we wanted to go with a December release. So all of a sudden it was not pressure, um, but it was just this, okay, well, I want to get this out by December. I don't want to rush it, but you know, how do I make that happen without rushing it? Um, and then all of a sudden one day ideas just sort of come to you. And as soon as I had any ideas, I would get to my computer right away and just start writing them. And it's that, you know, that flow just starts to happen. You get an idea out and all of a sudden the next one comes and everything sort of connects. Um, the, the, the highlight of that part for me, though, was working with an illustrator. So the first and third book are illustrated by this amazing, amazing um, girl. Her name is Alexandria Massey, and she is actually um, an art student here in, um, in Canada. And she took my story and she gave it a whole new life that I didn't. She, you know, she looked at it from a lens that I never saw. So that was really cool when I got those illustrations because then that's where I started to make some edits because all of a sudden the illustrations told a part of the story that I hadn't thought of. So I was able to change some of the wording and you know reorder some of the pieces. So that was a really cool part that I didn't expect to happen. Um, the second book came from a conversation that Brian and I had had. He has a, a graphic out that is called uh, 10 Reasons to Teach Coding. And it's something that I had used in all of, you know presentations that I had done. Um, and it was a very concise list of here's why you as an educator need to teach coding. I took that one day and I turned it into the kid version. And it was, you know, what happens when I learn to code and or 10 reasons to teach kids to code. Um, and then, so we had these two graphics out and I remember calling him one day saying, I, I think that this can be a book. So we had a phone call one day and we just started throwing ideas out and it was this really sort of, it wasn't, it was quick, but it wasn't rushed. It was very well thought out. It was something that we're both very, very passionate about. And so, but we see it from such a different lens because I am coming from K and he's coming from higher ed. So to, to, to put those ideas together was a really fun experience. And that one I illustrated. So that process, that was a little bit um, quicker simply because I had the digital illustrations in front of me and I could work on them all summer long when I needed to. That one came out sort of, a, I call it a companion guide to the first Gracie, if you will. Um, and then the second Gracie, I already had in my head when I was writing the first Gracie. And this is what happens, I, I think, when you're writing a kid's book. As you start to write, you, you make this life for this character 
that you you can see already in the future. So these ideas sort of come up of where you want this character to go next. And from there, I think it's just a matter of time of actually sitting down to write it. Um, and I noticed in the third Gracie, the same thing happened. I knew how I wanted just to start. I knew what I wanted to happen. I knew what I wanted to happen in the end, but I didn't know how to connect those ideas without, again, without it feeling rushed, you know? So um, that middle piece, again, with that writer's block started to happen and I put it off to the side. Um, and I wanted that book to come out a year later. So again, that same idea of, okay, I need this out. I want this out in, in December. I need to sit down and put some effort into, you know, making these ideas connect. Um, and because they're about a student, because they're about a little girl, I live that. So it's, it was just a matter of sort of sitting back and thinking about where these pieces have happened in my life, whether in my classroom or with my daughter. And then I'll, again, it just sort of happens. And these, these, um, these, these ideas just sort of spill when, when you sit down and, and take the time to do that. So the, um, the, the publishing side of things. So for Codebreaker, I'm the managing director. And one of the things that I do is build our books. So there's that, um, you know, very, very positive side where I work on it at the same time as building it. So I've, I've, you know, sort of taken out the middleman that other people would have to deal with. And from a speed side of things that, you know, takes a considerable amount of time off of, you know, the timeline of that publishing process. So we had Jeff Kubiak on an episode about a year ago, and mm -hmm. he, he, I remember him saying something very similar with the characters and just that that building yeah. of the characters in the process. Uh, his book, One Drop of Kindness, um, with uh, with Gus, the character in that book, mm -hmm. and just uh, being a very, very similar uh, story that, that you just shared, Building Gracie as well. And then, well, then he turned that into a second book called It's Me, where it was students and people from his life that were the various characters within the books. So it, it's, I, I sense a theme, especially with children's books where you're just drawing on so many influences and people in your own personal lives yeah. to create these, all, I, I don't want to say fictional characters because that doesn't do it justice. See, what I love about our characters in children's books is that they come from such a deeper space than just, you know, um, a digital drawing on paper. So what people see as this character in, you know, just, just a book character, I see not as a, a real person, but as, you know, as having much more depth. Um, and Gracie came from, like I said, Gracie came from four students, but Gracie, before Gracie was Gracie, she was Ruby. Um, it was a name that I'd heard in a, in a book that I'd read before. And I really liked that name. Um, when I pitched that idea to Brian, he told me that Ruby was a coding language and Ruby was a character in another series of books. And it wasn't a great idea to go that way. So he pitched the idea of naming her after a real person. So I did some research on women in STEM and I came across a lady by the name of Grace Hopper. And on the list that Brian had sent me, he, um, it was, it was, you know, prominent females in STEM. And I had gone through it really quickly. And she was the only person who had anything to do with computers and coding. So that's why initially why I took the name Grace Hopper or and turned it into Gracie. So over time, I started doing more research into Grace Hopper and who she was, and that helped me build the character more. So, you know, I, I obviously never met Grace Hopper and I never knew her, but what I've read and the research that I've done, that part goes into the character of Gracie as well. And it adds that extra meaningful piece that she, you know, she's named after this character or after this person, and it gives her more substance 
And I like letting people know about who, how Gracie came to be and who she is. And in the third book, um, readers are introduced to Edie and Edie is named after a uh, female, she was the first female graduate from MIT with an engineering degree and her name is Edith Clark. Um, and she has a, a list, a laundry list of things that she was the first female to. And one of the things was to be in the National Inventors Hall of Fame, which I thought was such a wicked title. <laughs> I want to be in the National Inventors Hall of Fame. So that's where Edie came to life as, you know, part of this uh, little duo who are inventing this contraption, which includes coding to help their, their class pet. So I love you know, being able to develop these characters and give them this personality that, you know, that only I know exists and, you know, and people make their own, you know, their own ideas of, of who these characters are. So I like that part of, of the children's writing process. So part of uh, your job now with Codebreaker, you mentioned that you're basically vetting and helping people along with their, their books, but um, you're also the social media director. So you get to promote a lot of this stuff as well. Yep. I, um, I've worked with some incredible, incredible authors since this process started. So Brian and I, um, Brian had been doing Codebreaker for, for years prior to when I came on board. Um, he was in the middle of writing his uh, third book, Risk Taker. And, you know, we just started going back and, and I was listening to some ideas that he had and there it is. That's <laughs> amazing. I love that book. And um, after Risk Taker, he had, um, I don't know, a phone call or an email or something from somebody, uh, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Mike Hines, who was in the middle of writing a book and was looking for a publisher. So Brian came to me and said, hey, you know, do you want to edit this book and try it out? So I tried it out and I loved it. I love being able to read. First of all, I love being able to read anybody's story. I think that that's such an incredible, um, you know, sort of gift to be able to, to be given. But to read that story before it's a book is something very different than just grabbing a book and reading it. I don't, I don't know what it is. It's just, it's just a very different thing. Before it becomes a book, it's someone's personal story. Then it's someone's book. There's something different about reading it before it's become a book. And it's a pretty you know, cool thing to be able to be a part of. So when we get our authors signed, they, you know, they come, they come through Brian and I, and then they come to me and I edit and we go through the editing process all together. And through that, as I'm reading through their books and find things, you know, that I find fascinating and interesting, um, I can throw that up onto our socials and, um, you know, be able to market those books to help, not to help sell books, to help stories to help people's stories be heard and that's something that brian and i are very very adamant about you know we're not here to to you know we're not you know we're not sitting here trying to to make money and hey that's that's a great part of the business let's you know I, i'm not going to be unrealistic but we are people first and we sell stories and we tell stories and that's um something that i am so grateful that i get to do um, alongside some incredible people yeah, for those listening, uh, the the pause there. Like, oh, there it is. Is I I held up a copy of Risk Taker by Brian Aspinall, <laughs> and uh, and I have that book uh, partly because when it came out a few weeks ago, I saw it come across my Twitter feed or something like that, and I saw the title of the book. I'm like, wait a second, I I wrote a book called To the Edge: Successes and Failures Through Risk Taking. So I just I DM Brian and said like, hey, I wrote this book. Like, what do you think about doing a book exchange, and we can 
basically compare and contrast each other's books. And he's like, that's a great idea. So we sent each other copies in. Um, as of this recording, I, sorry, Brian, if you're listening, I have not had a chance to dive in yet, <laughs> uh, but I am going to very soon. So especially now that we've had this conversation. I was just saying, now the pressure's on, man. Yeah, so now now that talking to Daphne here, we I definitely got to get into it. Um, and, you know, and Brian, that offer's still on the table about um, once we both have read each other's books that we need to do something either in the podcast or the video format to talk about it. And I think we both could benefit from that. And again, not like, not because of sales, like you say, Daphne, but just getting stories out there. Right. Uh, so I, I know the sales of my book have not been great, you know, and I blame the pandemic, but um, again, <laughs> if one person read my book and got something from it, I'm totally fine with that. So I didn't write this book to expect to be a New York times bestseller and, you know, jump ship to a, a major label as we would say in the music business, but in the publishing business, and then, you know, retire off that or anything. So, but just, and Daphne, like you said, reading other people's stories and learning more about them as people is something mm -hmm. that I really love as well. So, and I'm sure there's a lot of that in Brian's version of Risk Taker. Brian's Risk Taker is, uh, it's one of my favorite books. It's, um, I found it so incredibly relatable. He's very, and I don't say this because, you know, he's my friend and, and all of those things. I read that before we had any sort of friendship brewing and it, it's just so relatable. He's so vulnerable in it and he's so authentic. Um, and it speaks to those educators who feel like they may be, they may feel isolated and, you know, mm. they, they're, they're looking for people to be a part of you know, their circle and who understand that education isn't textbooks and curriculum and checking those boxes, that it's so much more than that. And that book really speaks to it. And uh, it definitely spoke to me. So there's my plug. Awesome. Well, at this point here, there's lots of different ways that people can connect with right. you online, social media, websites and whatnot. Um, where can people connect with you? You can find me on Twitter at McMenemy Tweets, and um, you can find me uh, on my website, DaphneMcMenemy.com, and on there will uh, will be all the my social handles. And if you're looking for more about Gracie, you can find her at DiscoverGracie.com. Awesome. Well, we can't thank you enough for joining yeah. us here today for this conversation, but uh, awesome. the learning does not stop at this no. point. We do got something else. Uh, coming up for you so we would love for you to stick around but again we thank you so much for joining us thank you for having me yeah thank you for being on and hey if you want to keep the conversation going and share some of your thoughts on today's topics um you know what daphne talked about coding all those things email us at info at buriedupodcast.com you can tweet us with the hashtag buriedu uh, hit us up on facebook at buried podcast check out our instagram feed buried pod Subscribe to our YouTube channel, which right now we're uh, live on, and that you can find that at bit.ly beer edu YouTube. And be sure to follow Daphne on McEnemy Tweets on Twitter. And you can also send us a voice message on the Anchor app. And please, as we always say, leave us a review on iTunes. Um, and Kyle, what if they want to be a guest? So if you want to be a guest on the show, visit our website, beeredupodcast.com. Click on the contact and subscription info link, complete our guest form, and we're going to get you on the show so you can uh, share your thoughts and your passions with us as well. And 
And as always, big shout out. Thank you to School Rubric yes. for featuring the Beer Edu podcast. The mission of School Rubric is to help schools, educators, parents, and students to help tell their stories so that stakeholders can make the best choices about enrollment and staffing. Learn more at www.schoolrubric.com and find more great content from educators from around the world. Yes, definitely check them out. And Daphne, we'd love to have you stay around. So Kyle, Kyle has a topic for us that he actually texted me yesterday. And I was like, oh, yeah. So so I, I'm interested in our, I think I personally love this learn about Kyle. Yeah, I didn't think this was going to take too much arm twisting to, uh, no. for this learn about. So uh, a, a while back, we did an episode where we paired beer with pizza and the best beers for pizza. Yep. Uh, it this devolved time around, into us getting, all getting pizza that night. So yes, it did. That's so that's what happened. And uh, so this one here is pairing beer with chicken wings. Yes. So just the quintessential like beer food. Like I, I think about the only thing that you could think of more is probably pretzels uh, with, mm -hmm. with beer. So, but um, who doesn't love beer and chicken wings unless you're vegetarian. And if you are, we apologize. So, <laughs> I mean, maybe there's something, maybe you do like Buffalo cauliflower instead of there chicken wings if you're vegetarian. So, which I don't like cauliflower really, but Buffalo cauliflower is really really yeah. good there's a restaurant near me that makes buffalo cauliflower that they, they roast it and then toss it in wing sauce yeah. and it's incredible so now we know the restaurant chains like your buffalo wild wings right. your wing stop and there's there's others out there and then your local places that they make millions every year because of chicken wings and beer right so why not we we already love the combination but why not make the experience even better by pairing it so i stumbled across this article from thecookful.com Okay. And the author of this article gave some advice on how to pair the beers with the chicken wings to bring out the flavors and to complement each other. Um, so some general rules of thumb to start with hops, intensify spice. So the hoppier the beer, the more intense the spice is usually going to be maltiness lessens the spice. So your malty beers are going to kind of cut that down a little bit. And then bitterness in more of your like standard lagers, that's going to cleanse your palate. So you can move on to another type of wing or, or whatnot. Uh, cutting saltiness in, in wings, go for your pale ales and your IPAs right. because these actually, between the hops and the maltiness, they actually give you a little bit of the best of both worlds there. So you can intensify spice or you can cut back on spice depending on the type of wing you're going with. And then she even went in the article even deeper that a black IPA, which is a highly underrated yes. beer, by the way, uh, that we... I'm not sure. We'll have to go back and look and we see if we've look. done that that topic there. Um, these are great for barbecue wings because oh, okay. you've got hoppiness that's going to intensify the barbecue, but also right. balance it out with the uh, dark malt from yes. that black IPA. So pilsners and standard lagers are good for the mild wings. The bitterness brings out the hops in those mild spice a little bit more. And then if, if the mild spice in the wings isn't enough for you, find a chili beer like a lager that has like jalapeno added right. to it. So to just to bring that intensity up a little bit. So I know the chili beers, they're not super popular, but you can no. stumble across them every now and then. And uh, fair warning though, they can get pretty intense. I had a habanero IPA once that I called it the devil's sweat. It was, yeah. it was not enjoyable. I've had, I've had a chili beer to the point where I'm like, I don't even taste anything. So yeah, be it's careful just on that. hot at that point. Yeah. So, and I love hot. Don't get me wrong, right. but I'm not sure I wanted to like swill it down. Yeah. Another one, if you're really into the really spicy Rock. wings, yeah. the Rauch beer or German for smoke beer, 
the, those beers tend to be a little creamy, so mm-hmm. it tones down the spice, but then that smokiness kind of pairs with the spice a little bit too. So that's a that's a cool combination. I need to try that one out at some point. And then wit beers, those Belgian styles, they're good for Asian style wings because the spice in the beers, like coriander especially, complements those Asian flavors real well. So those are just a handful of the ways that this article talked about pairing the beer with the wings. Now mm-hmm. for me, I, again, I love hot. I love the right. really hot wings. And um, with that, if I'm going to go with a really hot one, I'm going to go with like a Pilsner to kind of right. cut that down a little bit. Or I do like a sweet stout with okay. those as well, because those like that chocolatey and that coffee flavor and the sweetness of the stout right. kind of cuts that as well. But I also like Parmesan garlic and barbecue wings too. And if that's going to be the case, I'm going to go with the IPA right. at that point. So um, I actually, when I had my Northwest Pale Ale that I talked about at the beginning of the show, right. I had chicken wings last night and it actually went really well. I did just traditional buffalo and then right. lemon pepper wings. And uh, it was okay. really good with uh, both those, the sweetness of the lemon pepper and then that, uh, the uh, IPA just, they kind of, they really went well together. Right. But uh, you, on the other hand, you I, got a different yeah. uh, different way to uh, go with this. Well, I, I have a chicken wing problem. It's well documented in my house that if we get pizza, then I have to get wings. And like my wife will point out how many calories are in the wings. And I'm like, I don't care. I'm going to eat them. Um, I like all wings, but I usually will go for hot, spicy buffalo sauce. Um, my go-to is pale ale. Like, like I cannot... For some reason, Sierra Nevada, which is always my standard one, that's kind of what I I go for. Um, but I mean, I won't discriminate. I, although I would say I, I agree with you, an IPA or one of those, um, even even a even a traditional lager, like a, even a big brand lager, you know, one of those, I'll do that. I will not do a porter or a stout or any of those. I just don't. I don't know. That's too much. Yeah. I, I mean, again, that's with if I'm going for something super spicy, just because yeah. it cuts that spice. So you can enjoy it a little bit more. Uh, but uh, I notice a trend here though, like with the Sierra Nevada pale ale, because we both mentioned that as pairing well with pizza too. <laughs> so I, I, there's something about that. There, there's so. something about that beer yeah. that just is so versatile. So there we I, go. you just can never go wrong with that. Well, so. I, Daphne, do you like chicken wings? We'll ask. I love chicken wings. There we uh, go. I just generally like food. <laughs> it's okay. okay. There <laughs> it's we go. Um, more so, especially uh, during COVID, because there's nothing else to do except <laughs> eat. So um, I don't. I don't discriminate between wings. Um, right. Now I, I'm not a beer drinker, but I might start now because I'm learning <laughs> a lot, and it all sounds very delicious and, and interesting. So. I might have to do my own research and, and and get back to you. There we go. Well, and you're not terribly far from Buffalo, New York, which is where the yes. Buffalo wing was born. Right. So, I mean, I'm sure there's probably some really great chicken wings yes. not far from you. Yeah, I'm, I will have to go find them now. Yeah, so, because I, the years ago when I was in Buffalo, I went to the two bars that claimed to be the inventor, Duff's and Anchor Bar. I went to mm-hmm. both of them and they were both incredible. But even like the little Irish bar around the corner from my friend's house, was still some of the best wings I ever had because right. it was in Buffalo. I mean, but again, there's no such thing as a bad chicken wing unless you get those really tiny ones with barely yeah. anything on them. Then, then those are so good. Yeah, there and it's it's how you make them too. That's the thing. So we get it. That's a whole other podcast too. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, Daphne, thank you so much for being uh, on the show and and sharing your journey with us and kind of what you're going through and, and your books. Um, we'll definitely put a link in there so people can check those out. It's it's awesome to to hear what you're up to. Thank you. It was awesome to be here. I appreciate it. 
Yes, indeed. Absolutely. And listeners, as always, thank you for joining us. And until next time, may the malts and the hops be with you. Right on. Right on.